Well, I hope you've been enjoying our time together in this chapter of Isaiah and getting to know this king that has come and will come again. And today we are going to look at verses 6 through 9 and the kingdom of our king. Uh, and then we're going to save verse 10 for Christmas Eve to finish up our series. So if you have your Bibles, please open them to Isaiah chapter 11, verses 6 to 9. Hear God's word. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, the young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of a cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me? O come, O come, Emmanuel. Come cheer our spirits by your advent here. Disperse the gloomy clouds of night and death's dark shadows, put them to flight. Lord, that is the cry of our hearts this morning. I'm sure there is a cloud of, of gloomy darkness over many of our hearts this morning as we long for the day, maybe even more than ever, when these clouds will be rolled back and our faith has finally made sight at your coming. But until that day, would you encourage our hearts as we drink from your holy word this morning? Spirit, come and refresh our souls and renew our hope as we anticipate the kingdom that is to come and is now here. And it's in King Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I just want things to go back to normal. How long is this going to last? Will it ever go back to the way things were? I would venture to guess that most of us have thought and or have said something like this in the last few months. Am I right? And while this year has hit everyone on different, different levels of terrible, I, I think all would agree that there is a collective longing for life to go back to the way things were or just, or just have some semblance of what we thought normal was. Right? We long for the days when we could see entire faces. We long for the day when hugs and handshakes weren't frowned upon. Maybe some of you are longing for the days when even the church served coffee and donuts <laughs> and handed out bulletins. And I never thought I'd say this, but after last week, I, I long for the days when we could go back to the old communion cups and not, not the prepackaged ones. I long for that day. But our longings, right, in this season, they go, they go much deeper than that, don't they? There is a deep longing in, in my soul for the day when our, our whole church family can gather again. And to hear the voices of all the dear saints in our congregation sing uninhibited. I know there's a deep longing for, for many of you to just even just see your families and your friends without fear. It's been absolutely crushing to hear how many of you have been unable to visit family members who are sick or even 
visit or comfort an aging parent. And it's devastating to hear of the loneliness that people are, are feeling with no immediate solution. Or there, there feels like there's a, there's a dark cloud that looms over our world that, that daily reminds us that the things are, are not as they once were. The brokenness of this world feels ever more acute. And we find ourselves longing for, for Christmas 2019 when we were ignorant of all these things. But I think you'd agree that deep down we all know that even after the COVID cloud is gone, things still will be hard. The world will still be broken. We'll still have problems. And our hearts will still long for more. And so therefore, today our longing ought not to be for the days that gone by, but rather we ought to long for a better day to come. A day not just when the dark cloud of COVID is gone, but rather a day when there are no more viruses, no more diseases, no more violence, no more fractured families, a day when sin and death are no more. The day when King Jesus comes again and ushers in not just a new day, but a new creation. And this morning, we get a glimpse of this coming kingdom, a kingdom that is full of peace, a kingdom without fear, a place where our king comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. And my hope today is that as we peer into this future kingdom, that it would stir your hearts to long for your king to come, long for his kingdom to come, and that you would be encouraged this morning to live like citizens of that kingdom to come today. We're going to look at our text uh, in two parts. First, we'll look at four qualities of this coming kingdom. And then second, we will look at four gifts of this kingdom that are here for us today. Uh, before we do that, I want to remind you again, last week we looked at the rule of the king that Isaiah had prophesied would come. And unlike Judah's current king, Ahaz, who had led the people in inequity and injustice, this coming king would be someone God's people could trust. They would be able to trust him because, right, this coming king would be empowered with the full measure of the Spirit, and his rule would be clothed in righteousness and faithfulness. This king would not be swayed by politics or profit, but would only be motivated by the fear of the Lord and towards what is just and holy, for he himself is holy. And now, looking at the passage that follows that, we see that when this king takes his seat on the throne, things are different. In this kingdom, the trees just aren't a little greener. The air is not just a little cleaner. Your neighbor just isn't a little nicer. No, more than that, when this king is on the throne, he ushers in a new creation. So what are the qualities of this new kingdom to come? What will this world look like when the king sits on his throne and executes this perfect justice and righteous rule? Well, first, look at verse 6 we see it is a peaceful kingdom, a peaceful kingdom. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb and the leopard shall lie down with a young goat and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together and the little child shall lead them. For the last few years, my parents have gifted our family uh, membership passes to the Indianapolis Zoo. So on Mondays, uh, during my day off, we'll often take our kids downtown to the zoo. And since we've gone so many times now, we start to feel like we are pretty much zoo experts. 
we know the best time to go to avoid the crowds. We know where to stand to get the best view of all the animals. Uh, we know the park like the back of our hand. But I'm fairly confident that you don't have to be a zoo expert or even have been to the zoo to know that there is not a wolf and lamb exhibit at the zoo. Everyone knows that exhibit would not last very long. We have to shield our kids' eyes from that one. And do you remember that scene from Jurassic Park when, when the goat gets raised up into the T-Rex cage? You know, it doesn't need to be explained to anyone that that goat hasn't been put there so the T-Rex can have a little playmate for the day, right? We know that goat is not invited to dinner. He, he is the dinner, right? And that is why this text is absolutely shocking, right? We are given a scene where wolves and lambs are dwelling together. We read, about, we read about a place where leopards and goats, lions and cows are not at enmity with one another, but they dwell together peacefully. The most fearsome predators are now living at peace with their prey. Uh, one commentator noted that this language here is inferring some hospitality being shown between these animals. As if the lamb is saying to the wolf, hey, come on in, pull up a chair, make yourself at home. So what in the world is Isaiah trying to tell us here? Is this a literal scene we should expect to see in the coming kingdom, or is this symbolic for something else? My answer is yes. Uh, yes, I, I think there, there could be a scene where we're encounter in the new heavens and new earth, something like this. But also I think it extends a little further. When we're dealing with poetic and prophetic literature, it's usually not wise to allegorize uh, everything unless it's explicit, but rather ask, hey, what is the main point that Isaiah is trying to communicate to us with each of these scenes? Well, in this particular scene, I think Isaiah is telling us that when the righteous king reigns, his kingdom will be marked with peace. Peace will be found on over every square inch of his kingdom and relationships that seemed impossible to reconcile in this world will be at peace in the next. The peace that is so hard to find today will be standard in this king's coming kingdom. There will no longer be talk of class warfare or culture wars. There'll be no more racial strife or political tension for King Jesus, the Prince of Peace, has established his forever kingdom. And furthermore, I don't want you to miss this, the scene doesn't just give us you know, it doesn't just tell these people to long for the days of King Solomon and the peace of his golden age, but rather Isaiah drawing his readers back to the Garden of Eden. The last time peace like this was ever seen on this earth. A time when God's image bears and his creation were at perfect peace. I mean, just look at the end of verse 6. We read of a little child leading these animals. This child will not just feel safer on lions and wolves, but will actually exercise authority and leadership over them. You know, it sounds like something out of a children's book, but in reality, right, it's straight out of Genesis chapter 2, when God gives mankind authority over his creation in the garden. In Messiah's kingdom, relationships that seemed impossible to reconcile are now at peace with one another in God's crown of creation, down to the cattle grazing on a hill will be at peace. The coming kingdom will be a peaceful kingdom. Second, we see that this kingdom is a transformed kingdom, a transformed kingdom. Look at verse 7. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. 
Here we get a clearer picture of this kingdom. It's a kingdom full of transformation, as we see now a bear grazing with a cow and a lion now eating straw like an ox. I don't think we're meant to, Isaiah's trying to force us to try to figure out, hey, how, how is this lion supposed to survive on, on the diet of straw? Uh, but rather, I, I think the main point here is, is we are to expect creation is going to go under a dramatic transformation in our future kingdom home. And these transformations, these changes will not be superficial, but will get at the very core of creation. In addition, we see this transformation is extended to the next generation. We see the bears and cubs and calves lying down together. They're young, they're playing together. The peace and transformation of this kingdom does not end after one generation, but these changes are now part of the DNA that is passed on without fear of it falling apart. Right, you'll remember throughout all of Israel's history, right, especially in the times of the judges, we see this pattern, right? One generation would repent and turn to the Lord, and the next, they would fall away. One king would fear the Lord, but then he'd be followed by a son who did not fear the Lord and failed to walk as his father did. It will not be so in this coming kingdom. For this transformation will be part of their new nature. And I think we can infer that if creation isn't transformed, if the lions are transformed, we can anticipate a fundamental transformation ourselves. It will be a transformed kingdom. Next we see the third quality of this kingdom. Then this coming kingdom, it is a curse-free kingdom. A curse-free kingdom. Look at verse 8. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. There will be plenty of things in 2020 that will be, again, I'm sure, written in the history books to come. But one thing that will be forever etched in my mind is that in the year 2020, it will be the year when the places that used to not frighten us now bring sheer terror. For example, our beloved Chick-fil-A Chick Play Place, right, is now treated like a condemned warehouse. It's like a the ball pit at Chuck E. Cheese might as well be full of spiders. And how many of us remember when we were watching YouTube videos on how to make sure we didn't catch the virus from our groceries? The groceries were even scary. And I know for many parents of young kids, this year was full of extra fear because infants and toddlers, right, they love to touch everything and they love to put everything right into their mouths. I still remember how horrified we were when we were at Costco my daughter, Emma, we're just, we, we turn away just for a second, and we turn back, and she's got one of those Costco cart belt buckles just shoved into her mouth. We're like, oh, no. Fear, right, has categorized this year in a number of ways. But, but as we see in our text, we get a picture of a world where even the most vulnerable have no fear, even of formerly looks like deadly snakes. Moms, can you imagine a world in where your toddler is, is playing peekaboo with a king cobra and your reaction is not to snatch them away, but to go grab your camera? Oh, okay, take a picture. Yeah, that's... I take from the scene that, that in this coming world, it will be so reordered that our reflexes and our instincts will be completely changed. All fear takes flight in this coming kingdom. 
Yet there's more here. I think there's more than what we see at first glance. I think Isaiah is giving us a picture of a world not only where we are unafraid of physical harm, but of spiritual harm. Remember back with me to the Garden of Eden. All right, Adam and Eve lived that perfect peace with God and walk with God. But then along came a snake, Satan in the form of a snake, and he deceives the man and the woman, and they disobey God. And after their disobedience, right, they bring upon themselves and creation the curse of sin. Adam's work now would now be labor, and a woman's labor would now bring much pain. Death would now mar God's crown of creation, and this curse of sin would be passed down to all generations to follow. And the snake became a symbol of his curse. But right, all hope was not lost, for in Genesis 3.15, we see God say this to the serpent. He says this, Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. God here is, is promising that there will be enmity, there will be conflict between two family lines. There will be an offspring of the serpent, which I think is representing the people who would wage war against God and his people, versus the offspring of the woman, those who were chosen by God and trusted God. And that through this woman's family line, there would one day come one who would bruise or crush the head of this serpent. But until that time, there would be enmity, there would be strife between these two families, the family of promise and the family of the serpent. And as you read your Bibles and as Scripture unfolds, we see this battle between the promised seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. Now, I would love to do, again, show you all the ways in which we see this all throughout Scriptures. I did a class on it last year. We may talk more about it in the coming year. But I, I want to make sure you, you see at least one poignant example that we even find in the New Testament of this battle between the seed of the woman versus the seed of the serpent. Matthew 23, we read about Jesus, and he rebukes the scribes and the Pharisees right, for their hypocrisy and for shutting the kingdom of heaven in people's faces while they themselves will not enter in. And then we read in Matthew 23, 33, look what he calls them, you serpents. You brood of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? And in similar fashion, in John chapter 8, he tells the Pharisees this again. He says, you are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. I think it's no coincidence that Jesus is using snake language to describe those who are opposing his ministry. I think Jesus is saying that if you are, you are of the offspring of the serpent because you are trying to thwart God's promised seed from crushing the serpent once and for all. Again, there are so many more of these examples I, I, I could show you. Look at Revelation 12, maybe this afternoon. But nevertheless, I, the whole point of this whole biblical storyline anticipates the day when the serpent will be crushed. And so when we read of this child playing with snakes, I, I think we are meant to understand that in this, this kingdom, the promise of God in Genesis 3.15 is fully complete. All the effects of the curse are reversed. There is no more death. There's no more pain. There's no more grief. In church, there will be no more sin and not even the possibility 
to sin, for the great snake has been defeated. Nothing unholy will ever enter the kingdom of Jesus. Even creation itself, which we'll see further in in Romans uh, chapter 8, was subjected to bondage and corruption and will be freed from the curse when the righteous king ushers in his kingdom. When this king establishes his forever kingdom, the weary world will rejoice, for his kingdom is a curse-free kingdom. And lastly, the last quality we'll look at is, I think, the core characteristic of this kingdom. The coming kingdom will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord. Look at verse 9. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. I call this the core characteristic because I think it gives us the reason why this kingdom is the way that it is. The reason nothing harmful or corrupt or wicked or destructive will be part of this holy mountain, this this new heavens and new earth, is because the whole earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord. One of the weighty privileges I have and I share with uh, the other elders and pastors here at Castleton Community is the privilege of being asked to pray for weighty matters that are going on in the life of our church. And it's been a season where there have been a lot of weighty prayer requests. And whenever someone asks me to pray, maybe for someone who is in the hospital, maybe close to dying, or maybe even a family who is already grieving the loss of a loved one, there's one question that I'll ask, and I would guess that you have asked this question before, a question that changes everything. It changes the way you pray, it changes the way you care for this family, and will instantly change how you feel about the situation the moment you hear the answer. Do you know what question I'm talking about? Do they know Jesus? Do they know Jesus? The answer to that question dramatically changes everything, doesn't it? And we all know that when we ask that question, we're not asking if they know about Jesus, if they've read about him before, if they could tell us who he was. No, but we want to know if they trust Jesus. Do they know him personally? And ultimately, we're asking, when they meet Jesus, will they be terrified? Or will they be glorified and filled with joy? Will those who mourn the passing of a loved one be filled with grief and joy or just grief? And in this coming kingdom, there will be no need to ask that question of anyone. For everyone who inhabits this kingdom will know the king like an intimate friend. For every corner of the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord. This kingdom is a peaceful kingdom. It's a transformed kingdom. It's a curse-free kingdom, and it will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord. And you can imagine how, how much hope that this description of this coming kingdom would give to the people of Israel in Isaiah's time as they were filled with this fear and a time of great darkness as the Assyrian army is surrounding them, coming at them. And I hope and I trust that your, your heart may, will be stirred up with hope even today. 
as you reflect on this kingdom and reflect on the kingdom that King Jesus will usher in one day. Nevertheless, I, I don't want us to leave here today with only the vision of the second advent and had completely miss the miracle of Christmas, his first advent. Because at this first coming, Jesus just didn't tell us about the kingdom that was to come, but he actually brought some of heaven with him. Maybe you've heard the, the phrase already, but not yet. It's the way theologians kind of distinguish the realities of heaven that are already here for God's people and those that are yet to come. And Christmas reminds us that this coming kingdom is not just a fanciful, faraway kingdom, but rather it's a kingdom that's near. That through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, he began to show us in part what this kingdom was like and ought to be true of the citizens of that kingdom today. So since it's Christmas, I want us to quickly unwrap four gifts of this heaven that Jesus makes available today and how it ought to change us as citizens of the kingdom to come as we wait for this new creation to come. So real briefly, four gifts of heaven that are here for us today as application. First, the first gift of heaven is peace with God and others. Peace with God and others. Right? Ever since Adam and Eve were, were kicked out of the garden, there was separation from God. There was enmity between God and man. And since God is holy, we are sinful. We are incapable of making peace with God. But when Jesus, the Prince of Peace, came to earth. He just didn't offer a hope of peace to come, but he actually made peace. Through his life and death and resurrection, Jesus gives peace with God to those who put their faith in him, and not in their good works, but in Christ to save them. We read this right in Romans 5.1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have what? We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So if you're here today and you've trusted in Christ, you have peace with God. Your relationship with God is not, your relationship with God is now characterized by peace. His righteous wrath no longer remains on you. He doesn't hold your sins against you anymore. And no one, not even death itself, can take away this peace that Christ has brought to those who believe. Now there are days when it doesn't feel like you're at peace. The sin that you feel that separates you from God, again, it's lying to you about the peace that you actually have with him. The reality is the heavenly peace rests with you today because of the work of Christ on your behalf. And friend, if you're listening today, whether you're here or you're at, at home, and you don't think you have peace with God, you, don't, you feel like God is far away from you this morning, I want you to hear that this message of Christmas is that God is near and that the peace that Jesus brought, the peace of heaven can be yours today. If you would turn and you would trust Christ, you don't need to wait a moment longer. You don't need to clean yourself up. Jesus has come to bring peace and he offers that to you today. And this, this gift of peace is not only with God, but it extends to one another. If you have your Bibles, please, I want to show you this. In Ephesians chapter 2, it's an amazing passage about what the peace of God that, that God has, uh, Jesus has done through, through his death 
and how it extends to one another today. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 13 through 16. It'll be on the screen as well. It says this, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. So since we have peace with God, we can be at peace with other, with one another in the body of Christ. Since Christ has broken down the walls of hostility that separated us, people who would not otherwise be friends can be at peace today with one another because they share with the, in this peace of God. I know for some of you it's hard to believe that even Boilermakers and Hoosiers can have peace with one another because Christ is their peace. Brothers and sisters, I, I, I really don't want you to miss this. All right, at, at his first coming, Christ, by his spirit, right, he establishes the church. And what is the church? The church is an outpost. It is an embassy of the kingdom. And therefore, as ambassadors of his kingdom, we ought to be people who are marked by this heavenly peace. And we ought to be people who make peace. We ought to be peacemakers. Everyone who interacts with one of Christ's ambassadors ought to see us as people who make peace. So if you're gathering with your, your family this Christmas, let's not be those people who stir up strife, stir up hostility, but rather people who bring the peace of heaven wherever we go. May be true of this church and in your homes. The second gift of heaven that is already here that Jesus has brought is the gift of transformation. The gift of transformation. Just remember with me back in verse 7, right? We saw Isaiah painted this picture of the lions and oxen eating together, right? And they're young playing together. The lions are eating, eating straw. It was a picture of complete transformation of the very nature of these animals. Similarly, though, as Christians, right, we, we have to recognize that even now, a radical transformation has happened in our nature. Ephesians 2, early on Ephesians 2, tells us, right, our very nature, we are children of, of wrath, under God's wrath. In order to be made right with God, he just didn't need to do some minor tweaks, some minor behavioral modifications. No, God needed to recreate us from the inside out. We need to be born again. And many of you remember that day when you were born again, when heaven invaded your heart and God gave you a longing for heaven. One day you wanted to do these things and the next day, you know what? I, I want to be with Jesus. I want to be with those people. I want to do those things. This is the miracle of heaven that has invaded all who trust in Christ. Right, Paul, in 2 Corinthians five seventeen, If anyone is in Christ, he is a what? A new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. This inner transformation of our nature, this gift of the Holy Spirit is a deposit of heaven and the assurance that Jesus' kingdom has been inaugurated here on earth when we receive those new hearts. Christian, so when, you, when your heart is filled with joy of, this, of the season, when you worship the king, when you long to be with God's people and celebrate Christ's coming, when your affections are towards things that are holy and right and good, 
Those don't come naturally to you. They are signs that heaven has broken and invaded into your heart and transformed you from the inside out. And as you behold your king, he is now, even right now, transforming you from one degree of glory to the next until one day he will complete the work he began in you. He gives us the gift of transformation. Third, Jesus gives us the gift of curse-crushing power. Curse-crushing power. One of my favorite Christmas hymns is Hark the Herald Angels Sing, full of rich lyrics. And my favorite verse, though, is one that I don't think we sing too often, but we got to sing it last week, so thank you to Luke for that. And the first part of the verse says this, Come, desire of nations, come. Fix in us thy heavenly home. Rise the woman's conquering seed. Bruise in us the serpent's head. Does that have a little more meaning today after we've talked this? Yeah. When we sing this, right, what are we doing? We're calling to Christ. We're singing to Christ. Come and crush the work of Satan in my heart. And because Christ crushed Satan's head through his death and resurrection, we now, by his grace and through the power of the Spirit, can crush sin in our hearts. We see this promise of curse-crushing power in Romans 6, 614. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under the law, but under grace. Yes, we will not be free from all the effects of the curse of sin until Christ comes again. And no, we won't achieve sinless perfection here on earth, but we must not minimize God's grace that he gives you to exercise dominion over the curse in your own life. For Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. The same spirit that helped Jesus resist Satan's temptation in the wilderness, he has put inside you, Christian, so that you may say no to sin and yes to righteousness today. Citizens of the kingdom to come will progressively look more and more like the king who has come as they walk by the Spirit. Friends, it is a lie straight from the pit of hell that says that your sin is too powerful to overcome, that you'll never be free from this, that you might as well just stop fighting. No, friend, God always provides a way of escape. And in Christ, you are no longer a slave to sin, but a slave to righteousness. And Christian, keep fighting. For greater is he that is in you than he who is in the world. And I love this passage, Romans 16. I hope this encourages your heart this morning. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Jesus, by his spirit, has given us curse-crushing power today. And finally, as we close, our last present, the last gift to unwrap, this is the gift of knowing God. Luke read part of this verse earlier this, this morning. John 1 says, The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth, on verse 16, for from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. At Christmas, God makes himself known in the face of Jesus Christ. So when you see Jesus, you've seen the Father. And because God has come to us, we don't have to wait for heaven to know God. We can actually know him today. And there is nothing like knowing Jesus. 
Right, as I said earlier, knowing Jesus changes everything. It changes how you see 2020. It changes how you view your suffering. For those who love God, right, all things work together for good. And the Apostle Paul knew this. Philippians says, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. So my question to you, church, this morning is, would you be willing to endure another 2020 if it meant that you could know Christ better because of it? Would you be willing to give up your comforts, your freedoms, if it meant that you could have more of Christ? Is there anything in this world that has more value than knowing Jesus? So many of you have, have gone through so much this year, more than, more than I have. And please hear me when I say this, I'm not wishing another 2020 on, on anybody. But I would hate to have us completely be stripped away of all these things this year and miss the ways that God is showing him more of himself. That when we suffer, we share in the sufferings of Christ. And that he is making us more ready for the day when all sufferings will cease. When we suffer with Christ, nothing is wasted. For in our pain, he gives us more of himself. And the best part of the new heavens and the new earth is, is not the opportunity to lead lions or to hang out with cobras. But the best part of heaven is because Jesus is going to be there. And we will finally see him as he is. So church, as this year comes to a close, my, my prayer is that, is that our hearts would long, not just for a new year, but would long for more of Christ. And that the hope of his glorious kingdom to come, that it would just renew our hearts this morning. For this kingdom that is coming, it's going to be a peaceful kingdom, a transformed kingdom, a curse-free kingdom, and it will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And since we know this day is coming, let's live like citizens of that kingdom today. Let's pray. Father, we, we, we deeply feel the brokenness of this world and we know many in our congregation who, who are at home or here are, are suffering greatly. And Father, our hearts now just, we long for the day when our suffering will cease and sin and death will be no more. And Lord, we know that day is coming soon. We know it's coming because you came first to us and you brought heaven to us, Lord Jesus. And, and until that day when you fully inaugurate your, your kingdom, when you bring your kingdom to, to earth, would you make us ready to enjoy that kingdom? Would you make us worthy ambassadors of this kingdom to the hurting world? And would this church be a faithful testimony of the kingdom that is to come through the way we love one another and seek to know our great king? Come, Lord Jesus, make all things new. And all God's people said, amen. amen.